in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's the beginning of the creation story. According to the scriptures, it's the beginning of the story of natural light. But I want to share some of the story of unnatural light, artificial light. It starts with fire, oil lanterns, and then candles. And by the time we get to the 1700s, things get really interesting. We have the discovery of the gas lamp, 1792. 1874, the discovery, the invention of the light bulb. Do you know who invented the light bulb? Wrong. I heard one or two say Edison. The actual answer is two Canadian scientists, Woodward and Evans. They invented the light bulb. They tried to mass produce it. They failed. So Thomas Edison bought the patent from them. He mass produced it and became the one known for inventing the light bulb. Great story. Heartbreaking if you're Canadian. But anyway, the story continues. 1926, fluorescent lamps. Love that. 1962, LED lamps. 20. 10 household LED lamps, saving us a bit of money there. 2015 e-reading LED lamps. And then fast forward to a key moment, 2023. King's Cross, Shaw Theatre, KXE Carol Service, right? We've got up lighters and we've got down lighters. We've got stage lights, house lights. We've got Christmas lights. We've got fake candle lights. We've got it all. And if you put it all together, do you know what you call it? Mood lighting. And we love mood lighting, don't we? It's beautiful. It makes us feel so powerful. Let me show you a picture of London at night. Pretty beautiful, hey? Beautiful to look at. It makes us feel powerful because someone's controlling every single one of those lights. But there's a technical term for what you see in the picture. Do you know the technical term? It is this, light pollution. Defined as the presence of excessive artificial lighting. That's London. If we zoom out, this is a picture of planet Earth, satellite image. And what this shows you is that light pollution is a global phenomenon. More than that, it's predominantly an urban phenomenon. More than that, you can see it's predominantly a Western phenomenon. So more than 80% of the world's population and 99% of Americans and Europeans live under sky glow. Like too much artificial light. You can look at a picture and you can think, oh, that's beautiful. And we're in control. It makes us feel powerful, but it's actually pretty damaging to our bodies. Listen to these words from an article in the National Geographic. Artificial light can wreak havoc on natural body rhythms in both humans and let's not forget animals. Nocturnal light interrupts sleep and confuses the circadian rhythm, which is the internal 24-hour clock that guides day and night activities and affects physiological processes in nearly all living organisms. An increased amount of light at night lowers melatonin production, which results in sleep deprivation, fatigue, headaches, stress, anxiety, and other health problems. Happy Christmas, by the way. Enjoy the festive lights this season. The article actually goes on to articulate that even during daylight hours, too much artificial light, for example, in the workplace is increasing migraine, stress, fatigue, sleep deprivation, and the list goes on. What I'm trying to say is this, that your body craves natural light. 
your body craves light from above. And because we're integrated beings, I want to suggest to you that your soul also craves light from above. Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis, a theologian from yesteryear. He says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Women do as well, by the way. I think that might have been a blind spot for C.S. Lewis. But we feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't mean that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. You see, your body craves natural light. Well, there's such a thing as natural light. I want to suggest your soul craves like an otherworldly form of light, and there is an otherworldly form of light. His name is Jesus. And this is what the Christmas story is all about. The Christmas story is about the inbreaking of light. And if you read through the biblical witnesses, the writers of the scriptures, when they articulate this moment of God taking on human flesh, they all use the same language. Here's a few of the verses that were read earlier. John's gospel, in him, Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Isaiah 9, this was written hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus. A prophetic figure pointing forwards to what was to come. And he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great... The answer is always going to be light if you want to engage in this game. It's a really fun game. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a... Has dawned. Luke chapter 1, another prophet, this time Zechariah, literally weeks before the arrival of Jesus, he says this By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, to make sense of the Christmas story, you need to place the Christmas story in the wider narrative to which it belongs, which is the story of God's engagement with creation. Let's call it the kingdom story, and this would be a summary of the kingdom story. In the beginning, God says, let there be light, and there is light. That gives us a clue that we were meant to live in the light that God's, God provides, live in communion with him. But if you know the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Adam and Eve turn their back on God, and they say, basically, no, we, we want to be king in our own creation. Like, we want to be Lord, right? So they walk away from God, the source of light. And if you walk away from light, you find yourself in darkness. Hence the language of Isaiah 9. People start walking in darkness. Fast forward to the Christmas story. The God that said, let there be light, takes on human flesh in this vulnerable baby, Jesus. We call this moment the incarnation. The Greek word is incarnate, literally means in flesh. Chili con carne, chili in flesh. God con carne, God in human flesh. Right? God takes on human flesh, the vulnerability of this baby. This little baby becomes a man. He's a man on a mission to bring light into the darkness. And he says regarding his mission, I haven't come for the healthy. I, I've come for those that need a doctor. 
and he makes a beeline for those most impacted by the darkness of the surrounding culture. He makes a beeline for the sex workers, the tax collectors, the lepers, the sinners, the outcasts, and he pulls those from the margins of society to the center, and he forms a family and says, this is a revolution that's beginning. We're going to find darkness. We're going to push back the darkness, and we're going to usher in the light. He then dies a brutal death. To overcome our sin, to overcome death itself, to overcome all darkness, he rises to new life. He ascends to the Father. He pours out his spirit. Just before he does that, he says to his followers, I am going to return. I am going to finish what I started. But in the meantime, I'm handing on the revolution to you. I want you to push forward the revolution. I want you to bring light to those in darkness. Bring liberty to captives. Comfort those who mourn. Draw widows and orphans into the, the family. Establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And that's what the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years. How's the story end? Well, if you read the last few pages of the scriptures, the story ends by God making his dwelling place with humanity. And at that point, we're told he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And there'll be no more death, no more grief, no more crying, no more pain. He's going to restore all things. All things will be made new. No more darkness, just glorious, glorious light. That's the kingdom story. And it's worth saying that that is the story that provides the foundation upon which Western civilization has been built. But it's also worth saying that we have rejected that story and we are rejecting that story. This is the story that we're choosing to live by. It's the secular story. Now, what happened during the Enlightenment, a number of thinkers came together and said, we like the shape of the Judeo-Christian story, that it has a beginning. Let's call that the golden age, an age to which we want to return. For them, it was Greek civilization. We like the fact that there's a, a descent, a fall, which provides an account for human brokenness and suffering. It explains why there's so much conflict around the world, in the Middle East, in Ukraine, and we see pain and brokenness all around us in a city like London. So it explains human suffering. They basically said, we like the fact that there's a linear view of time and this movement towards this utopian vision, this pro progression towards perfection. We love all that. What we hate about the story is that God's at the center of the story. And we want to put the rational, autonomous self at the center of the story. Like, we, we don't want his light. We want to be in control. We want to be the ones that say, let there be light. We reject light from above and we choose artificial light. And if you look at the language that was used, like dark ages towards the enlightenment, that's just lifted out of the Gospels. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Language of renaissance, French word meaning rebirth. That's just lifted out of the Gospels too, John chapter 3. A guy approaches Jesus and says, I want in on this revolution, this light breaking into the darkness. How do I get in on the revolution? And Jesus says, if you want in on the revolution, you need to be born again from above. You need a rebirth by the Spirit. And the Enlightenment thinkers are like, ooh, we love that language. But we don't want a rebirth by the Spirit. We want a rebirth through human endeavor and scientific progress and technological advance because we want to be the masters of our destiny. We want to be the architects of our future. So they put the self at the center of the story. 
Tom Holland, the historian, not Spider-Man, worth making that clear. Um, Tom Holland, the historian, in his epic book, Dominion, um, subtitled The Making of the Western Mind, which is basically a book about Western civilization, and it's a book about this new religion called secularism. He summarizes secularism as godless Christianity. It's Christianity without Christ. He goes on to say in his book that what, what you're seeing right now is we want all the fruits of the Judeo-Christian story, our understanding of justice and freedom and redemption and what it means to be human as image bearers. And what comes from that is, is human identity and all of this stuff. We want all the fruit. We just want to chop down the tree, right? That gave us the fruit. We want to put ourselves at the center of the story. And the question I want to ask is, how is secularism working for you? Like at its best, I think secularism can look really beautiful. And it makes us feel really powerful because we have a lot of control. But is it damaging the body? And is it damaging the soul? Because as I look around this cultural moment, there's high levels of anxiety and they're constantly rising. High levels of despair and they're constantly rising. High levels of disillusionment and they're constantly rising. Like, is, is secularism working? If the scientists are telling us that light pollution is damaging the body, it's worth asking the question, is spiritual light pollution damaging the soul? Are we ODing on artificial light and what is it doing to our souls? I want to close with a story. I'm going to take you to another time and another place. We're heading to Spain. You're going to need your imagination for this one. I'm going to take you back to the Middle Ages and I'm going to give you a choice. You can either choose to step into a flamenco dance setting or a bullfighting setting. You, you choose in your imagination. But imagine you're in the crowd and you're watching a bullfighter or a flamenco dancer and imagine they do something like just beautiful, something heroic, something sublime, something that takes your breath away and causes you to ask the question like, I'm not sure that was human. That felt divine. What I just witnessed there, I felt like I glimpsed something of the glory of God, right? Now, you're in the crowd, you've witnessed it, and then you notice the crowd around you begin to chant, ole, ole, ole. Now, there we go. Thank you so much. Audience participation, that's more than you guys have been bringing. Um, ole, ole, ole. And you can see traces of this in football stadiums to this day. It sounds a bit more like this. Ole, 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 ole. Right? Sounds much better with ole, ole, ole. Why were people chanting ole, ole, ole? And to understand the chant, you need to go back further in time. So I'm taking you now to the 700s, to the plains of North Africa, where they would gather in, at moonlight to celebrate movement and dance and music. Um, and when a performer, a singer or a dancer did something spectacular, something sublime, something where you're like, that felt like a glimpse of God, the crowd would start chanting, Allah, Allah, Allah which is the name for God, right? The name that Muslims use for God, but it's also the name that Arabic Christians use for God. It's the Arabic translation of the Hebrew term Elohim that the scripture uses for God. So in other words, when they saw something spectacular, they, they didn't start chanting the name of the artist, right? The dancer. They're like, that was amazing, but we know what's behind that. That's God. We've just seen a glimpse of God. And it was like, Allah, Allah, Allah becomes Ole, 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 because ole, 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 the referees, I'm not going to continue the chant, but you've heard it on the terraces too, right? You see, beneath all of that was this understanding that we're made in the image of God 
and we reflect the glory of God. And there's moments when I look at you and I'm like, in them I've just glimpsed something of the glory of God because they're image bearers, they're reflectors of the glory of God. That's what it really means to be human. But during the enlightenment, we basically said, we, we don't want to do God anymore. So we built a ceiling to cut off the heavens. We basically said, we don't want transcendence anymore. We want imminence. So we settled for artificial light. So rather than trusting in God, we decided we're going to put our trust in humans. And we're going to put our trust in rulers, kings and queens, and leaders and politicians and man-made institutions. And when they let us down, because they will always let us down, we started turning in. We started looking on the inside, right? I need to find something within. I need to provide for my needs. I need to be my protector. I need to be my own savior. More than that, we started looking within for some light. And when you turn in on yourself, you get isolated. And anxiety levels rise. And despair levels begin to rise. I want to ask the question, is there a better story and is there a remedy? I believe there is a remedy, by the way. His name is Jesus, and he reveals himself to us through the Christmas story, right? This is what we call awakening. Awakening is what happens when someone basically says, I've OD'd on artificial light. I can't actually be my own savior. I'm going to puncture a hole in the ceiling that was put above my head and I'm going to see if there's any light up there, right? I, I'm just going to trust that maybe this dawn from on high can break upon me. That's called a personal awakening. When multiple people start having personal awakenings, historians call it cultural awakening. This is when a whole culture basically says the story we're living in sucks and it's harming us. So, so we're going to tear up the secular scripts that we've been handed and we're going to see if there's a better story and we're going to puncture a hole in the ceiling that was created and we're going to see if there's any natural light, light from above, right? When that begins to happen, we call it cultural awakening and people begin to rise up with hope in their hearts that there is a better story and they begin to declare, now's the time to sound the call, that light has come, it's here for all. All things will be made new and all things will be restored. Now's the time to sound the call and be the change we're praying for. Awake my soul and praise the Lord. Awake my soul and praise the Lord. This is my encouragement this Christmas. If you feel like you've been ODing on artificial light and you've not tried this, this would be my encouragement. To wake up, to look up, puncture a hole in the ceiling and maybe it will become your story, your testimony. You'll join the saints throughout the ages who've declared the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That's not people just quoting scripture. That's people telling their story. Like if you wake up and look up and puncture a hole in the ceiling, you might be able to join a chorus of saints throughout the ages declaring the dawn from on high. It actually has broken upon us. Like if you decide you want to try something different, you puncture a hole in the ceiling, you wake up and look up, you might join the chorus declaring it's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. Average, five out of ten. <laughs> that's not scripture. That's Nina Simone, but it comes a very close second, right? This is the invitation of Christmas, by the way. 
is that you don't need to wake up this Christmas and give yourself a pep talk. You can do this. You've got this. You can do this. You might not have it, right? But you can say, I'm not settling for like artificial light. Like I'm not settling for just putting myself at the center of the story. I'm gonna puncture a hole in the heavens. I'm gonna wake up. I'm gonna look up. And do you know what we call that? We call that awakening. And I pray that you experience one this Christmas. We're gonna have a performance song right now. We're gonna remain seated for this. So I'm gonna invite that band to the stage. And the performance song is, is a moment for you just to reflect. And you might wanna offer up your own prayer. If you believe in Jesus, you can pray, Lord, shine your light upon me and my family and my friends this Christmas. If you don't believe in God, your prayer might look and sound a bit different. Like, God, I'm not sure I believe in you. Don't even really know why I'm talking to you. But if you're out there and you want connection, relationship with me, I'm gonna wake up right now, I'm gonna look up and I'm gonna puncture a hole in the ceiling and just trust that your light could shine upon me and dispel any darkness within me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Fill the room with your presence. Jesus, we thank you that you're not a distant deity, that you drew close to us. The God that said, let there be light, took on human flesh and lived amongst us, lived for us, died for our sins, rose again, is coming back to finish what he started. And we pray, Lord, that the dawn from on high would break in upon all of us this Christmas. We want to experience personal, cultural awakening. Amen.